Hi, I'm Kara Swisher. I'm Peter Kafka. And thanks for listening to Recode Replay. This is one of the sessions from our 2017 Code Conference. We're going to let you hear it in just a second for free. You're welcome. But before we do that, we want to plug another conference. Okay, fine, if you insist. I must, I must. You must Um, insist. If you like this event, there's a very good chance you're going to like Code Media 2018. February 12th and 13th in Huntington Beach, California. 2018. I can't believe it's next year. Next year. Absolutely. Save the date. Peter and I will both be there, which means it's going to be a fantastic event. I've been to all of them and I have learned things. I would actually pay for them, Peter. We may charge you this year. Uh, One more time. That's Code Media 2018. It's like this event, but it's in 2018. February 12th and 13th. Go to events.recode.net for all the deets, as the kids say. As the kids say. Thanks, Peter. See ya. Ladies and gentlemen... Tristan Harris. I want you to imagine a control room just like this. And imagine that this control room, these little buttons and dials you see, if you push one, it's going to affect the thoughts and feelings and beliefs that will occur in one of two billion people. This might sound like science fiction, but this is actually the world that we're living in right now. Because... Every day, the tech industry, whether we want to or not, we are shaping the thoughts and feelings and beliefs that will show up in two billion people's minds. And I know this because I used to be inside one of these control rooms. I was a design ethicist at Google where I studied how do you ethically steer two billion people's thoughts? What does that mean? Because I've, and because I've always seen people's minds as vulnerable. When I was a kid, I was a magician, and it always taught me that people's attention is much less in their control than it seems. You can cause someone to believe something that didn't happen. You can cause someone's attention to go from here to there without them even realizing it. And it taught me fundamentally that people's minds are vulnerable. And I'm here today because I want to talk about how this control room that we're all making is steering our minds in a kind of dangerous direction. Um, Because no matter what utopia that we build with Bitcoin and drones and, you know, God knows what, everything in the future will still depend on how our minds are working and what we're thinking and believing and what we can focus on. Because one thing that's not going away is the race for attention. Everything needs our attention. Our friends need our attention. Our family needs our attention. All apps need our attention. Politicians need our attention to win elections. And there's only so much attention. And so the best way to get attention is to know like a magician how someone's mind works, how to go in the back door and push a button so you can get someone to think of you and come to you and stay for as long as possible. And the problem is it's never been more competitive, so you have to actually get really good at it. A simple example is YouTube. So if you want people's attention, what do you do? You notice there's this moment of choice and it's blocking people from spending time with you. So what do you do is you autoplay the next video. But because there's only so much attention, if you're Netflix, you have to say, well, hold on a sec, that's going to shrink my market share, so then I have to autoplay the next video. And then if you're Facebook, then you look at that and say, no, but hold on, we have to autoplay all the videos in the news feed just to get people's attention. And so the internet becomes more and more like a giant wormhole that's sucking us in. We know exactly where this is going. Because technology is getting better and better at exploiting our minds, and it's only getting worse 
because it doesn't respect the ecology of what else we want in our lives. It doesn't respect the ecology of what else we value. And it means that you have to go lower on the brainstem to win. So I'll give you a second example of Snapchat. Snapchat, if you didn't know, like, uh, is the number one way for teenagers to communicate. So if you're like me and you text messages, the number one way you communicate, just think that that's what teenagers do with Snapchat. It's the dominant way. And they figured out, how do we get people stuck to our app? So they added this feature called a streak. So next to each one of your contacts, it shows the number of days in a row that two kids have sent a message back to each other. And what that does is it sort of ties two kids together on a treadmill where they have to keep the streak going, and they, don't wanna, they give them something these two kids don't want to lose. And so if you're a kid, you have like 30 of these things. And it just it schedules all these little blocks of time in your day where you're stressed out thinking about which of these, you know, I have to get, you take pictures of photos and walls and ceilings just to get through your day. And it's not theoretical because uh, kids actually give their password up to five other friends just to um, uh, keep their streaks going in their, in, their, in their absence. And the number one request from celebrities in LA is actually to keep their streaks going. So it's even happening to adults. So what, what are we doing to people? We're raising a whole generation that will never even know the difference between this and what came before. And it's less, so technology becomes less and less about, oh sorry, technology becomes less and less about what empowers us to communicate and more and more what gets our attention. So if this makes you feel a little bit outraged that we'd be doing this to kids, outrage is another good way of getting our attention. Because outrage just works on you, it animates you, it just comes up in you. And outrage is good not just to getting attention, but it's spreading attention to everywhere. Because when you see something outrageous, you have to share it and say, can you believe the thing that they said? And so if you have an attention economy that's racing to get more and more of our attention, and it learns that this works well, the Facebook newsfeed can inadvertently prefer an outrage feed over a calm newsfeed. And so that takes over the control room and ends up steering the, the thoughts of two billion people's minds. And in an election year, in a democracy, when nothing, a democracy is nothing but the contents of what people are thinking and believing, and in an election year when 50% of the world's, uh, of the US's number one news source was Facebook, this is shaping the kinds of conversations we have. Worse, the control room is actually accountable to the highest bidder. Because if you pay the guy at the door, you can open the door and say, that group over there, I want to target these thoughts to show up in their mind. And so you can target a lie to the people who are most susceptible. And because it's profitable, it'll only get worse. So if we thought fake news made it hard to know what's really true, we're undermining our own ability to discern that in a general way. Liarbird is a new company that actually lets you take a few minutes of someone's voice speaking, and you can actually simulate them saying anything. So what's that, Barack Obama? Hey, Doc, have you heard of this new technology? Are you speaking about this new algorithm to copy voices? Yes, it is developed by a startup called Liarbird. So this is also happening with video. Recently, we've been able to actually make video and simulate anyone saying anything by tracking a separate video feed of another person. And so, do you see where this is going? Our mind is being hijacked. Whether we want to or not, it's not intentional, but we're living in a moment in history, an inflection point. We're being better and better at shaping and steering what we're thinking and believing, so much so that our mind is not even a relevant instrument, a reliable instrument, for knowing what's true, even when we want to know what's true.
And if you forget about the future of a potential runaway AI, this one is actually already happening right now. Because elections around the world, the train has already left the station, the train's down the tracks. Elections around the world are already being shaped by this. The control room is already shaping what two billion people are thinking, and you couldn't even tap someone on the shoulder, someone working in the control room, and say, hey, what's the world thinking today? It's run loose. And it's not just reshaping elections, it's reshaping what kids are thinking and doing. And it affects everyone because two billion people have one of these in their pocket. And so I'm here today because the costs of this are so obvious. It's a dangerous future when we're actually undermining the only instrument that we have to navigate our lives, to put our attention and sustain it on what we care about. I think of this like a new era of human history. You know, we've always had bombs, like, it's like 1946, where we, we'd always had bombs, but we just invented a new kind of bomb, a nuclear bomb. And honestly, if you were back then, it might have felt really terrifying about how are we going to make it through this? If we've invented a technology that can do this to ourselves, how do we save ourselves from ourselves? And I think we're in a similar moment with the ability to undermine our own minds. How are we going to navigate when our own mind not just addicted and distracted, but we can't even know what's important to us or what's true. How are we going to get around this? But just like back in 1946, we had to invent a new sort of social exoskeleton to stabilize our native human instincts into a game theory and, and agreements that basically stabilize the world we wanted to live in. And it's actually the people in this room that are going to be the ones who are doing that for technology. But to do that, we actually have to talk about this problem. We have to know that it exists, that it's real. And that's going to require three fundamental changes, at the very least. The first is acknowledging that minds are persuadable. Just imagine all of you are magicians. And even being a magician doesn't help you from escaping the fact that you're inside one of these things. We are persuadable. I think of this like a new era, like a new um, enlightenment, a kind of a self-awareness enlightenment, where we, we see ourselves fundamentally in a different way. It's also going to require a different accountability mechanism system, because the control room is only going to get better and better at steering what we're thinking and believing and persuading us on a personal and individual level. And so we're going to want that control room working for us, the only ethical persuasion that I know is when the goals of the persuader are aligned with the goals of the persuadee. And that's going to mean questioning big things like the business model of advertising. And the last thing is we're going to need a human design renaissance. This is a uh, Leonardo da Vinci uh, drawing, which is a new view of our nature as being fundamentally more fragile and vulnerable. Just like a democracy isn't something that just resiliently stands up on its own, it's, it's, it's fragile, and you have to protect it. So our mind, we might want to protect something about how our minds work and how we can steer our own thoughts. And this is going to require a more dominant, a more honest view of our own nature. And what practically that might look like is instead of you know, uh, that control room working to basically undermine our own working, having it work for us, so concretely, let's say you're at home on a Tuesday night and your friend cancels dinner on you, and you, in a moment of loneliness, just open up you know, Facebook or something. 
And at that moment, the control room is, only has one goal, which is to maximize how much time you spend on the screen. Instead of that, imagine that that control room actually wants to help you, and it knows that you're lonely, and asks, well, what would be most time well spent for you in your life? So aligning the control room's goals and the design goals of designers with the products that we want to make. So I'm here because I don't know any other room to talk to about this. If this is going to change, it's going to be because the venture capitalists among us will fund the world we want to live in. And the technology leaders that we have will, will create the technology that we want to use. And the press and the media will shine light on these issues. So I hope I've convinced you this is a problem. And I'm here today because I want to facilitate a conversation to fix it. So thank you. Thanks for listening to Recode Replay.